0: These seven letters to the seven churches were written so that they might know that Jesus sees them and knows them, knows their circumstances. And so we've been walking through and we've finished five, two remain, Philadelphia and Laodicea. And and we just thought that in light of what these letters are teaching us, It's not just a a generic understanding or a, a disconnected picture of God. It's a very specific one that's going to come in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Who is the one worthy of worship? And who is the one who has purchased people for God? And so Revelation chapters 4 and 5 literally set the stage for all of this. And so before we hit the final two letters, we thought it would be good for us to hear, to be reminded of who it is that is worthy of our worship and our adoration and our sacrifice and our lives. We are going to be reading from God's word this morning. I'll end with Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. But before that, we're going to actually have a psalm read over us this morning. Um, And again, it's not going to appear on the screen. It usually does, but it will not appear on the screen. So please allow me to just read the Word of God over you this morning. Psalm 150. Hallelujah. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His powerful acts. Praise Him for His abundant greatness. Praise Him with trumpet blast. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and flute. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that breathes praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And after this I looked, and there in heaven was an open door, The first voice that I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. There it is. Um, Blessings of the Lord upon each of you. Have You ever come in here and had a hard time praising God? Have you ever walked in here and had a difficult time saying a prayer, hearing the word? Have you ever had a time in your life or maybe a season of your life when it was just hard to worship God? I don't know if you like to admit such things. I don't. But I will confess before you, my brothers and my sisters, that this is true of me, probably more than I would like to admit over the last couple of years. Um, On more than one occasion, it has been hard for me to worship God. Um, If you're like me, and I'm guessing some of you are, you've had this same feeling, where you know what we're here to do. You even believe in what we're doing here. It's here, sometimes here. You just don't feel it. You just don't really, and you don't want to say this, want to. Just a little too hard today. And maybe you're just distracted that Sunday. It's no one thing, but maybe a string of all the things piling up at once, and you're just distracted. You come in here disjointed. The kids are screaming in the car, and you're returning volley to them appropriately before you get here, and you come in in a whirlwind, and then we start, and then you leave, and we've got to figure out lunch, maybe you're a student, and all the tests, and all the papers all the classes are starting to pile up and pressure you along with all the social things you've committed to, said yes to probably too many things this semester, or at your job, you have deadlines to meet, expectations to meet, people to please, and you come in here distracted. Uh, maybe, maybe you come in here feeling a bit of despair, if you're honest, and um, you just got the news that You have a sickness, or someone has a sickness that is going to change your life forever. Maybe someone you love died too soon. Maybe you just got let go from that job. Maybe you didn't get into the thing you were hoping to get into. And you're angry about it. You're feeling a sense of disillusionment. It's hard to come in here and sing. Maybe you're just a bit depressed. It was hard enough to get out of bed this morning, let alone sing songs of praise to God. It was hard enough to crack a smile at the door to the fit team, let alone offer up praises and offerings to our King. I feel like that more often than I'd like to admit. And as I've tried to process that feeling this week, I came to a conclusion as to why. Why is it me, and maybe some of you with me, can come in here distracted, in despair, in anger, in disillusionment, and find it hard to sing to God, to offer up prayers to the Creator, to hear the Word, to, to participate around the table in the work of Christ. And I think if we're honest, it's because we've traded glimpses of glory for glory itself. What I mean is each and every one of us were created for God. We were created to represent God here. We were created to relate to God. We were, I think, created to have a longing for God. And at some level, God made many things in this world. He actually made it originally good. If you read through Genesis 1, the things he made were good. And I think probably a lot of us just haven't quite read and fast-forwarded to Genesis 3, to the rest of the Old Testament, to the rest of the story of God, and the reality that sin has come and things are broken. That sin has come and I've welcomed it into my heart and into my mind and into my home. That sin has come and made things not good. But probably many of us, without even saying it out loud, are fooled into believing that this life is the best life. That the ultimate good of humanity is meant to be experienced now, on this earth, in this life. We love Genesis one. We just haven't quite read Genesis three. And what happens there is we actually take these good things that God has given us in this life, these shadows of something else that are to come, these glimpses of the glory that His faithful people will get to experience someday in His presence, as He continually outpours Himself and the blessings that come from Him. We forget. That those things, those those good things aren't allowed to become like God things, things that our lives are so focused on and our attention is so devoted to that we begin to worship them. That those glimpses of glory become glory in and of themselves instead of things that are meant to point us to the only one who truly deserves our attention, who deserves our praise, who deserves our worship. We trade good things for the good one, the good king, the good God who sits on a throne. And you know what happens when we choose to believe that in this life we are to face the ultimate good? What happens is that when hard stuff comes, we don't respond very well. When suffering comes, when we believe that this life is supposed to be good, that it's supposed to be comfortable, that at some level it's supposed to be easy and simple and peaceful and happy, when suffering comes, we begin to question everything. In difficulty, our center is revealed. The thing that we build our life upon is revealed. When, when hard stuff comes, when difficulty comes, when trials come, what we build our life on is revealed. And for many of us, what's revealed is that we've lost the transcendent. We've lost the heavenly. We've lost the perspective of God, and all we can see is what's right before us. We're left alone to believe our emotions, our own feelings, are the most true thing about ourselves, that our emotions and how we're dealing with the circumstances before us are revealing the most true reality there is. And that is why we need revelation. Revelation wasn't given to confuse us, to scare us, as many people would probably say, uh, most people avoid revelation. I don't know why. Because with a disciplined imagination, we can read revelation, we can respond to revelation in the way it was meant to be responded to, the way it was meant to be heard and obeyed. Actually, what revelation was meant to do is to help us see beyond what's actually in front of us and to re-see, to have a new imagination, to re-see the things that have become familiar. It's not meant to confuse. It's not meant to scare us. It's meant to encourage us. It's meant to lead us to more faithfulness. It's meant to lead us to worship. And that's why we need Revelation 4 and 5, because what Revelation 4 and 5 do is they lift the veil on reality. What Revelation 4 and 5 does is it helps deconstruct your own understanding of reality. To to deconstruct your understanding of yourself. To tear down whatever you thought God was like and to help you see him for who he truly is. To reconstruct a better understanding of both history and yourself. To better understand your emotions and your thoughts and the true beliefs which are supposed to guide those things. Just because you think something doesn't make it true. Just because you believe something doesn't make it true. Just because you seem to be experiencing something in some way, in some subjective way, doesn't actually mean that is all there is. Actually, there's something more. And we need revelation in order to see it. We need God to reveal himself generally and then to reveal himself specifically to show us who he is and to help us re-see the things before us, to re-see the things that have become all too familiar so that we don't lose what is transcendent, so we don't lose what is heavenly, so we don't lose what is godly, but that we can see things the way they truly are. We need revelation. Open. Open your Bible, to Revelation chapter 4. And what we're going to see here in Revelation chapter 4 is a picture of God, the one who is seated on the throne. And we're going to see in Revelation 5 a lamb. Jesus, maybe not how we expected him to be. Let's read Revelation chapter 4. After this, I looked, and there in heaven, the place where God dwells, was an open door. The first voice that I heard speaking to me was like a trumpet and said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately, I was in the Spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone seated on it. A throne in heaven, someone seated on it, someone with authority, someone with power, someone who is sovereign over the things that are in heaven, under heaven, on the earth, under the earth, in the sea, in all the places. Verse 3, the one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone. A rainbow had the appearance of an emerald surrounded this throne. This picture of majesty and wonder and beauty and this rainbow around this one seated on the throne, hearkening us back to Genesis 9 and God's promise to Noah. This promise-making God, this covenant-keeping God, maybe this is the one seated on the throne that we are being Shown Verse 4, around the throne were 24 other thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their head, and immediately we're taken back to Revelation 2 and 3, and the promises that Jesus gave to those churches if they conquered. How do we conquer? We remain faithful. In the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of the difficulties of this life, the way you conquer is to remain faithful. And if you conquer, you will be given a crown of life. And If you conquer, you will be given a throne. And if you conquer, you will be given these white robes that represent the purity and the holiness that are given to us by God himself through the work of Jesus. Verse 5, flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. There is power there. There is might there. There is awe there. We were led to fear and tremble before this throne. Verse six something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and back were around the throne and on each side. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third like the face of a man, the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four creatures had six wings and were covered with eyes around each side. We're taking back to Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 2, to Isaiah chapter 6, to some of these visions and some of these prophetic, more apocalyptic pieces of literature from the Old Testament. And let me give you a hint here. If you want to know Revelation well, you need to read the Bible. You need to read the Old Testament because it will help you see better what's going on. You need a disciplined imagination to see the things that God is revealing through John in the book of Revelation. These four creatures representing at some level the created things that surround the throne of God, bringing and offering praise before him. Noble creatures, powerful creatures, wise creatures, swift creatures that all center themselves before their creator, their God. Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, 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 set apart, different, other, Lord God, the Almighty who was who is and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and they worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will, they exist were created if difficulty reveals our center then revelation 4 helps reveal the one who is meant to be at the center in our sufferings in our trials in our pains of this life whatever is center of our life is revealed quite quickly and it's shown by how you think about those situations how you feel about them how you respond and act toward them. And then Revelation 4 comes and says, No, this, this is the center. This is the thing. This is the one that everything else is meant to revolve around. This is the spot where all attention was meant to be given. This is the one alone who is worthy of being at our center. Why? Because he made us. He's the one who made us and sustains us. Why? Because he is holy. He's different. He's not like any of the other created things. He's actually not a created thing at all. He's almighty, unlike any created thing. He has all the power. He, he was, is, and is to come, meaning he is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. God is. He is uniquely worthy to receive glory and honor and power. That is why he alone is able to be on the throne. To be the king of the universe. To be sovereign over all things. Difficulty reveals our center. Revelation 4 reveals the true center. And what Revelation 4 wants us to do is to re-center to be readjusted so that we can actually function well in this life. To see things, not how they may see, be in our eyes or in our feelings or in our experiences, but to see things the way God sees them so that we can do this life better. That we can experience this life better. Ultimately, that we can be faithful and that we are led to Worship. And that would be a pretty adequate way to end and to move on to whatever the next thing is, but John doesn't do that because that's not the end of the vision that God gave him. It goes on in chapter 5, and then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. And then this is interesting. I, John, wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to even look at it. That's a hard thing to imagine. Not not the being there in the throne room necessarily and seeing the one on the throne with the scroll. No, that, that at some level we can picture, even if not perfectly, but to weep. For there to be some message, some truth of God's will written on this scroll and for no one to be found worthy to open it, to read it, to proclaim it, to enact it, and for John to weep over that. He had a longing for God to fix things. You ever had that? You ever seen the bad things going on in your life and just wish God would do something about it? You ever suffered and wish you didn't have to suffer? You ever watched somebody pass, somebody you love, and wish that God would heal them, resurrect them, bring them back to you, keep them with you? He wept because John longed for what we long for, for somebody to do something about the brokenness. John longed for what the churches of Revelation longed for, for somebody to deal with the Romans, those jerks, those people who kept hurting us, those people who kept killing those that we love, those people who, because of our faith in Jesus, kept ostracizing us. We want God to make it right because our families keep telling us we're not welcome there anymore because of our allegiance to Jesus and the trouble it's causing them in the marketplace. We long for Jesus, to, somebody, for God to do something because we long for things to be made right. We're tired of suffering. We're tired of persecution. We're tired of pain. We're tired of death and disease and destruction. We're just tired of it and we want God to do something. And I wept and I wept because no one is found to open the scroll and to break its seals. That's not it. Verse 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Oh, that's an image that John likes. Oh, he likes that. Genesis 49, you remember that one? In your morning Bible reading plan from January 18th? <laughs> I don't know if that's true. If that's it, that is awesome. Um, Genesis 49, verse 8, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. I like that image. When I'm dealing with the Romans and all those people, I like that image. I like one who's going to come put their hand on the necks of my enemies. I like this idea of Judah being a young lion who's crouching, ready to pounce. This one, this... Lion in the tribe of Judah whose scepter will not depart, that all people will praise him. I like that image. I like that kind of a king who everyone's going to get in line with that king. I like that. John liked that. He liked the other one too. The root of David from Isaiah 11. I'm not even going to try the date on that one. Isaiah 11, verse 1. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. A branch from the roots will bear it. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, remember his baptism. A spirit of wisdom and understanding, I know your works. A spirit of counsel and strength. A spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. But he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed Of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth and he will kill the wicked with the command from his lips. I like that image, the root of David. I like that image of the line of the tribe of Judah. I cannot wait. Yep, let's go. Bring it, Lord. And he will. And he will. You've got to read the rest of the book of Revelation. But first, read verse 6. He expected to turn and see this lion. He expected to turn and see this Messiah from the line of David who will put his hand on the neck of his enemies, who will speak and kill the wicked. But he saw a slaughtered lamb. And then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb, standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns, meaning he had perfect power and authority. He had seven eyes, meaning he could see all the things which are the seven spirits of God, which is sent into all the earth. The Holy Spirit was on him. The slaughtered lamb. Why would you give these images like the line of the tribe of Judah, like the root of David, and then turn and see a slaughtered lamb? Maybe because we're getting insight into a bigger story. Maybe we're supposed to see things beyond how we see them. Actually, what God is doing here is showing how we conquer. Yes, I'll do the thing I said in Genesis 49. I will. Just read the rest of the book of Revelation. I promise you. I am going to judge the wicked according to what they have done. They will get theirs. I promise you. I'm going to fulfill what I said in Isaiah 11. I'm going to make sure everyone is repaid according to what they have done, the evil they have shown you, the pain they have caused you, the unfaithfulness they have had against me. But, before that, you need to remember something like the cross. That this Messiah wasn't like the Messiah they expected, but it was the Messiah that they needed. That this Christ was actually coming to do something unique that they hadn't fully anticipated or expected that actually before Christ was going to come and judge everything and remove all the powers and authorities of this world to trample all the governments of this world to remove all the injustice from this world to make everything right again first he was going to die first he would be slaughtered first he would pour out his blood he'd be like a lamb a perfect sacrifice taking the place of his people. And that's the image that we see. Actually, a slaughtered lamb helps us re see suffering in our own life, doesn't it? A slaughtered lamb, that's how we conquer. Actually, that helps us re see suffering for how the Bible actually talks about suffering. Actually, the Bible talks about suffering as, like, you will suffer, but take heart. I have overcome the world, Jesus says. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Paul says it too. You'll face trials and tribulations. If you are part of God's people, you will face difficulty in this life. And it's a call, a consistent call, to remain faithful. That the hard things in our life, the difficulties and the trials, actually if you go through them in a faithful way, it can lead to maturity in you. That's what James says, the brother of Jesus that actually kind of all joy my brothers and sisters when you face trials of many kinds because those trials those difficulties that come in your life if you go through them faithfully it'll actually make you more like Christ who willingly went into difficulty in trial actually death isn't something that we have to fear and when you look at the death of Jesus and the resurrection that came after death is no longer something we have to fear it's something we can mourn but we don't we don't despair death. We're not led to no hope in the light of death. No, in light of death for our, those that we love and even for ourselves, we have a hopeful morning. We have a, 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 even a joyful morning when the faithful saints pass. Because death isn't the end of the story. This life is not all there is. This earth is not our ultimate good. Revelation 4 and 5 helps us see that. It helps us re-see everything, including suffering. Verse 7, he, the lamb, went and took the scroll out of the hand of the one seated on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Their posture changes before him. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense. And pay attention here, which are the prayers of the saints. Yeah, that's interesting to me. That in heaven, at the throne room of God... There is a bowl. There are these bowls. And within these bowls are the prayers of the saints. What does that tell me? That tells me God hears my prayers. God, he's not just out there, up there, on his throne, not caring and not knowing about what's going down here, but he's personal and he's imminent. He, He is here. He's present with us. He hears those prayers and he's storing them up. Because the reality is all of us have prayed things and not seen them come through. Lord, heal her. Lord, heal him. Lord, fix this. Lord, deliver us. And sometimes the healing doesn't come when we want it to come. Sometimes they pass. Sometimes we're not delivered in the timeline we want. But what Revelation 5 tells us, and actually what Revelation 6 tells us, is that He hears us. He cares. He has the power to fix it. It just might not happen when we want it done. Look at chapter 6, verse 9. As the seals of this scroll are being opened, different plagues are being poured out, different judgment from God are being poured out, and usually it's uh, talking about those who are unfaithful to God, those who are not showing reverence to God. But in verse 9 of chapter 6, we see attention drawn toward a different group. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had been given. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? You ever said that prayer? How long, O Lord, are you going to wait? I'm ready, Lord. Maranatha, come, Lord, now. We've all probably prayed that prayer, how long? And he doesn't He doesn't necessarily resolve it in the way maybe they wanted it resolved, but verse 11 gives us insight to reality of how things really are. They were each given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. Listen, the Lord hears our prayers. He is with us He will never leave us or forsake us. He wants to encourage us and strengthen us. But his promises that he's going to make all things new, that he will heal, that he will raise us from the dead, those are things to come. And the things of this life, the health we have or the security we have or the comfort we have, these are glimpses of the glory that we are to experience someday in the future when we are in the full presence of God. But for now, we're to remain faithful. Verse 9 of chapter 5, and they sang a new song, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You've gathered people from the four corners of the earth, all who look different, who have different backgrounds, but who are united by the work of Christ. You, God, alone are able to purchase for yourself a people through the work of the blood on the cross. You have made us new. You have given us hope. You have given us a future. You made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I look and heard a voice. Many angels, many angels joined this choir around the throne, and also the living creatures and the elders, and their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. And they said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and everything in them say, Blessing and honor, glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And then the four living creatures said, Amen. Yes, Lord, truly, this is good, yes, Lord. And the elders fell down and worshiped him. If our difficulties, our sufferings, our trials reveal what is at the center of our lives, Revelation 4 and 5 comes and reveals what is meant to be at the center of our lives. It helps us to re-see the things before us and gives us, just shines a new light upon it. It helps give us a glimpse into the glory that we will experience someday. God inspires this writing from Revelation 4 and 5 for the purpose of helping the church, both then and now, remember the importance of having a sovereign, holy, powerful, good, and personal God reigning on the throne right now. And when God, who is at the center of all things in heaven and on earth, takes his proper place at the center of our lives, difficulty and trial are put into their proper perspective. They're temporary. They won't last. Actually, if you do it well, faithfully, those things can actually make you more like Christ. Your weakness can actually bring about the power of God in you. Actually, if we are faithful even to the point of death, we will be given the crown of life. We will give, be given a throne, white robes. We will be given the presence of God himself in the eternal lifelong blessings that only he can give This is why we need Revelation 4 and 5. And brothers and sisters, this is why we need worship. Because if Revelation 4 and 5 opens our eyes to the most true reality that there is, then worship is how we participate with it. Worship is how we intentionally say that life is not about me. Worship is how we make sure we show and say and remember and continue to proclaim that this life is not about the glimpses of glory, but we anticipate the true glory to be experienced in the presence of God someday, someday. Worship, whether that be singing praises to God, offering prayers to God, hearing the word of God participating in the table of God, communing with the fellowship of the people of God. Worship is the kind of thing we do because we are the people of God. Worship is something that we do despite our feelings. Actually, probably the time you need to worship most is when you feel like worshiping the least. The time that you need to most lean into who God is and what he has done and the promises that are only revealed through him in his scripture and in his son is the time you least feel like it in here. Brothers and sisters, you will be tempted in this life to not sing, to not proclaim the praises of God. And not just because of like foolish, childish things like, yeah, I don't like singing. Yeah, I'm not somebody who sings. Or by doing, making a decision out of fear like I'm scared of how people will hear me but we sing because we know that when we sing we join the choir of the entire created order in the throne room of God because we are in the presence of God God isn't just out there but he's actually here God isn't just out there, but he is with us. That when we gather together in this unique way on Sunday morning, we sing songs because that is what the people of God have always done. When God does something, when he delivers something, when they need something, God's people sing. And that's what we will do. You'll be tempted not to at some point. And I'm not saying just because you need to quiet yourself and pray, yes, that's fine. I'm not saying because you don't quite know the rhythm of this song, sure, that's going to happen. But don't let yourself be somebody who doesn't sing because of your circumstances. When your circumstances are difficult, sing all the more. When things are hard, pray all the more. When you're feeling distant from the Lord, then run to the Lord and have him revealed to you in his word. And don't forget to come around the table and to remember the work of Christ, which mysteriously and beautifully ushers us weekly into the throne room of God. Brothers and sisters, we will be tempted not to worship well, but worshiping well connects us with the God who is on the throne. So my challenge for us today, sing well. And my challenge as you leave, worship well. My challenge as you go is to pray hard, to submit to the word, to let yourself see things the way they really are and not be bound by your circumstances and your feelings to sit around the throne.